Welcome to the Shortwave Report. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. This Shortwave Report is a 30-minute review of news and opinion heard on a shortwave radio and the internet in Northern California. Listening to international broadcast at home is quite easy. You just need a shortwave radio with a schedule of English language broadcast, or it's simpler to use a computer or smartphone with an internet connection. To help you with this, I'll announce times, frequencies, and website addresses at the conclusion of each series of stories. At the website for this show, that's outfarpress.com, you can listen to the past five shortwave reports, find advice for listening to shortwave at home, and find internet links for global news sources. Please check it out and tell a friend. In today's edition, you'll hear reports from Going Underground, France 24, Radio Havana, Cuba, and NHK Japan. We will begin with Afshin Ratansi's Going Underground. Afshin spoke with Harriet Fraud, feminist psychotherapist and host of the podcast called Capitalism Hits Home, and a weekly program on WBAI called Interpersonal Update. She discusses the debt ceiling fiasco, the U.S. focus on the military-industrial complex, and the motives behind the U.S. involvement in the war in Ukraine, going underground. As a dozen countries formally look not to Washington, but to joining BRICS, what desperate forces of capital could corrupt a multipolar world leading to a continuation of policies that lead to mass starvation and war instead of community and personal happiness. Joining me now from New York City is Dr. Harriet Fraud, host of the podcast Capitalism Hits Home. Uh, what would you say to those uh, learning capitalism at business schools in the global south about uh, uh, why everyone's going crazy about the debt ceiling? I would say that there is a humongous elephant in the room that everyone is shielding their eyes from. The elephant in the room is, of course, there's enough money. They just won't tax the rich and nobody will bring it up, neither the Democrats nor the Republicans. In 2017, Trump gave a $1.7 billion tax cut to the wealthy. They could take that back. That's easy or they could have a 1% tax on incomes over 10 million a year. Then there wouldn't be any deficit, or they could change the inheritance back to what it used to be. The inheritance tax for a long time was $600,000 allowed to be transferred to the next generation upon the death of the previous generation. Now it's 25 million. Oh, there's a lot of money. The United States was the most egalitarian nation in the developed world in 1970. Now it's the least egalitarian. The most lucrative of American industries now is the war industry. We are the top producers. This is one place America is still the top. We are the top producers of war materials in the world, unsurpassed. And therefore, they always need an excuse to keep military weapons being produced. After World War II, there was a push to a peacetime economy. But one of the things that they thought helped get us out of the depression was the wartime economy, and they don't want to give it up. The reason it keeps going is the the economy and the people at the top who are making billions off the war industry needed to keep going. So we always need to have a war against somebody. Now, we can't kill Americans anymore. It's unpopular. 
So now we're fighting to the last Ukrainian, right? They're trying to create a war of attrition to weaken Russia in order to split up the coalition that bothers them, which is the emerging powerhouse, which is China, which has the most people and is the fastest developing country in the world, and Russia, which has the greatest natural resources and landmass in the world, by they want to disrupt that unity by a war of attrition against Russia. The point is to exhaust Russia and thereby exhaust the alliance that threatens the U.S. empire, which is crumbling. And that is the up-and-coming China-Russia alliance, so that all these nations, even like Argentina and Nicaragua and Saudi Arabia, want to join BRICS and not NATO, because they see that as the future. And also because they're not getting IMF loans that will impoverish their populations to pay them back. They like the belts and roads policies of China. And they look to China, which took, there's different estimates, but the lowest estimate is 700 million people out of poverty, whereas the United States sent 8 million people into poverty just in the last couple of years. So that when the U.S. tells Saudi Arabia, who used to be our enormous ally, stop producing so much oil, we need the price to go down, the Saudi Arabians can say, hey, go pound sand, forget it, we're doing what we want. Fully 90% of the world's resources used to be held in American dollars. And in treasury notes, now it's halved. It's a little less than 45%. This is not a good sign. It's a failing empire. How about cutting that $850 billion budget for the armaments and start creating a peacetime economy that works for the American people? But they're not doing that because the elites are very involved in that wartime economy. And I think for elites, they don't care. They're not patriotic. They'll make money wherever they can and take their billions wherever they want. And why does, why does democracy need socialism? Well, I think they need socialism because if your point is profit, that's what you get. Profit. You don't get, let's, let's take the healthcare system of which I'm a part. If the point is to make money in a for-profit health system, that's what you get, a lot of profit and a lousy health system. We spend the most money in the world on health and we're seventh from the top. We're not the top. We have an inferior healthcare system that leaves out huge swaths of people. The point is profit, not health. Of course, that's what you get. Plus, if you have to go through an insurance company that's trying to deny you whatever you need and cut the cost, you're in trouble. Profit interferes with everything. It induces immorality. What you do is you create a, a group of people and you induce in them no compassion for other people. You care that the production is up, and that's what you're paid for. And so you have to suspend compassion. Dr. Harriet Fraud, uh, obviously uh, all the oligarch elites uh, deny any wrongdoing. Elon Musk gave my Twitter account back, actually. But uh, thank you so much. <laughs>
That excerpted interview with Helen Fraud was by Afshin Ratansi from his twice-weekly program called Going Underground TV. You can find a complete interview at the Canadian-based streaming service called Rumble.com. They have also posted archived interviews Afshin did with John Pilger, Julian Assange, Patrick Coburn, and many others. Search for Going Underground on Rumble.com. On to France 24. This past Monday was the 50th annual World Environment Day, and this year's theme was Plastic Pollution. An interview with Graham Forbes from Greenpeace USA. Last week, the German government rounded up leaders of the environmental group called Last Generation, which has created a spike in new members. Then a press review on the dam collapse in Ukraine. France 24. Now, this Monday is World Environment Day, an awareness-raising and campaigning day that's been held since 1973. Each year, the programme has a theme, and this year, it's all about plastic pollution. More than 400 million tonnes of plastic are produced every year around the world, of which only 10% is recycled. Now, last week, over 170 countries agreed to draft a treaty together aimed at ending plastic pollution. It's only the first step, but negotiators are scheduled to meet again in November. And at those talks was Graham Forbes. He's the global plastics campaign lead for Greenpeace in the United States, and he joins me live on the programme now. Can you just tell us, first of all, why it is so urgent that we need a global treaty on plastics? Yeah, well, plastics really sits at the intersection of the triple planetary crisis, which is climate change, biodiversity loss and pollution. And nearly every piece of plastic that ever been created comes from fossil fuels. And we dramatically need to reduce plastic production and have global rules that help address a global problem. And we think the treaty can deliver this. And you attended the talks here in Paris, and it was reported at the time that a number of oil-producing countries tried to sort of delay the process, delay getting the agreement over the line. I wonder whether you, you witnessed that, whether that rings true for you. It does. I mean, I think that they understand the stakes are very high because the world is watching and, and people expect action. And we spent more than half the meeting really going over procedural issues that were meant to really slow down the time it took to get us to talk substance, which is really at the core of what needs to be done in this treaty process. Are you concerned then that the deadline won't be met of getting an initial draft of this treaty on plastics um, by the summit in November? Well, we got the bare minimum of what we needed out of Paris, and so I, I'm, I'm still optimistic that we're going to get something meaningful that addresses plastic production, which is the core element the treaty needs to, to deliver. People around the world are sick and tired of plastic pollution and demanding action from their leaders. Um, and as you've alluded to, over 99% of plastic is made from fossil fuels. And I wonder, looking ahead to November and beyond, how concerned you are that the petroleum industry will try to water down this treaty that you say is so important? 
Yeah, I mean, they were out in full force in Paris. I think the fossil fuel industry literally flooded the negotiations with lobbyists and, and their impact was very clearly felt. I think plastics is a unique issue in that it really reaches across sort of political lines. There's a mass public movement that is really demanding action, unlike on any other issue. And I think that sets plastic apart. I think we're going to be able to stand up to the fossil fuel industry and deliver the global reductions to plastic production that the world needs. And just finally, you know, in recent years, we've been hearing a lot more about single use plastic. Just tell us why that is, is such a particular problem, why we're hearing that phrase around now and perhaps what alternatives there are out there for people to not use single use plastic. Yeah, well, single-use plastic is particularly harmful, and so much of it is absolutely unnecessary. And so when you think about the impact it has on human health, on the human body, and, and on the environment around the world, it's an obvious one that, that we can move away from. We need corporations, and we need the global treaty to put reuse targets in place so that people have options. We reuse the materials that we have, and then we aren't sacrificing ourselves and the planet for a, a piece of plastic that we're going to use for literally seconds and that will pollute for generations. Graham Forbes, the Global Plastics Campaign Lead for Greenpeace in the United States. Thank you very much indeed. Training in civil disobedience. Laura and Lily are thinking of becoming last-generation climate activists. In this Berlin backyard, they practice road-blocking and dealing with angry motorists. It's extreme psychological pressure. There's a lot of violence. It's a good way of seeing whether we're capable of this sort of action. Candidates like them for direct action have never been so numerous, says Simon, their trainer. The more they repress us, the more people realize the government is not taking climate protection seriously. Last Generation is suspected by law enforcers of forming a criminal organization. Searches have been carried out and bank accounts frozen. Since then, support demonstrations have been held across Germany. We are here to say that the way they are being treated is unacceptable. What the government's doing is completely disproportionate. The movement has already announced it's continuing its shock tactics. This makes our task much more difficult, but we're ready to face the judicial consequences. Not for the sake of it, but because the foundations of our existence are collapsing. But the activists who have been blocking roads these past weeks remain in the sights of the law. Dozens have been served prison sentences. Politicians on all sides support the police action. A group of people organized and financed to prepare illegal activities. That is called a criminal organization. Nobody says it's the mafia, but it has to stop. Supporters have donated almost half a million euros of emergency assistance to the group, enough to continue its fight against climate change, legally or not. Who uh, or what provoked the dam collapse, why or how? We don't really have the answers to these questions, but as the French paper La Croix notes on its front page, uh, one thing is for sure, it's that the destruction of the Karkovka dam on the Dnipro River in the Kherson region is a, a major turning point in the war in Ukraine, both for Russian and Ukrainian forces. You have also making front page 
of the British Daily, the Financial Times, uh, which echoes comments made by Ukrainian uh, President Volodymyr Zelensky as saying that Russia set off an environmental bomb by breaching uh, the dam. Uh, the FT says that it is also a blow to Ukraine's counter-offensive plans. Erin. What about from the Russian press, Dipti? How are they reacting? Well, let's uh, show you then, uh, Kamersant, the, um, the one of the more major Russian dailies. Uh, the collapse, uh, the paper says, will change everything from an environmental point of view, but also in terms of the risks uh, posed to the Zaporizhia power plant. Uh, the paper says that experts believe that there was no explosion and that the dam collapsed uh, really because of structural damage linked to previous shelling. Those reports were from France 24. France 24 may be easily found at their website, france24.com, as well as a YouTube channel called France 24 English and most major podcast sites. Next, Radio Havana, Cuba. A brief update on the growing political support for the release of Julian Assange. In Germany, dozens were arrested protesting the conviction of an anti-fascist activist. U.S. Senator Chris Van Hollen called on Biden to make public a report on the killing of journalist Shireen Abul Akleh in Palestine by Israeli military forces. France threatens to ban Twitter from the European Union. Radio Havana, Cuba. Just a few weeks ago, Julian Assange, founder of WikiLeaks, was serving his fourth term in a maximum security prison in the United Kingdom. An extradition order hangs over him to the United States, where the journalist would be tried for 18 crimes related to conspiracy to commit computer intrusion and disclosure of classified documents. While waiting for the UK Supreme Court to accept or reject the appeal filed by the defence, Assange's family members are finalising contacts with political leaders and human rights organisations to prevent the extradition. Stella Morris, lawyer, press freedom activist, and Assange's wife, considers her husband's case to be a political persecution and calls on Europe to comply with its human rights standards. The documentary ITH aka Ithaca, produced by Ben Lawrence in 2021, premiered at the Docs Valencia Festival, explores the most intimate side of the journalist's environment and his struggle to achieve freedom. In the German city of Leipzig, dozens of people were arrested or detained over the weekend as police clashed with protesters. Authorities sought to ban demonstrations following the conviction last week of an anti-fascist activist. 28-year-old Lina E. received five years in prison for attacking neo-Nazis. Three others received sentences of two to three years. Activists decried the violent crackdown on protests and public assembly. Activist Ende Gelande told reporters, quote, it's unbelievable experiencing how repressive the state and Police are against anti-fascist protesters. It's exactly the same response to climate activists, but we are standing strong together in solidarity. 
A U.S. senator has called on President Joe Biden's administration to make public a government report on the killing of Al Jazeera journalist Shireen Abu Akhle. Democrat Chris Van Hollen said that he had reviewed the report by the U.S. Security Coordinator for Israel and the Palestinian Authority, the USSC, weeks after he requested it from the State Department. The senator said in his statement, quote, I strongly believe that its public release is vital to ensuring transparency and accountability in the shooting death of American citizen and journalist Shireen Abu Akhle and to avoid future preventable and wrongful deaths, goals we should all support. Abu Akhle, a veteran Palestinian-American correspondent, was killed on May 11, 2022, while covering an Israeli raid in Jenin, a city in the occupied West Bank. At first, Israeli officials falsely accused Palestinian gunmen of fatally shooting Abu Akhle, before acknowledging months later that she was likely killed by an Israeli soldier. Still, Israel has dismissed the incident as unintentional and has not opened a criminal probe into the killing, prompting calls for the United States, a staunch ally of Israel to conduct its own investigation and seek accountability in the case. Senator Van Holen said that the Palestinian Authority or the USSC that oversees and encourages security coordination between Israel and Palestinian officials, quote, was not granted access to key witnesses and was unable to conduct an independent investigation into the killing. Still, the Senate said the U.S. government report provides, quote, very important insights into the incident, including on the Israeli unit involved in the operation that led to Abu Akhle's death, as well as other Israeli military units operating in the West Bank. In July of 2022, the State Department cited an initial USSC summary of the probes conducted by Israel and the Palestinian Authority, the PA, that concluded that Israeli gunfire was, quote, likely responsible for Abu Lakhle's death, though it found no reason to believe the shooting was intentional. The assessment angered Palestinian rights supporters who noted that U.S. authorities did not interview witnesses and ignored the PA's conclusion that the shooting was deliberate. Witnesses, video footage and investigations by numerous media outlets have concluded there was no fighting in the immediate vicinity of where Abu Akhle, who was in full press gear, was fatally shot. France has threatened to ban Twitter from the European Union if the American social media network fails to abide by new disinformation regulations. France's Digital Transition and Telecommunications Minister, Jean-Noël Barraud, said the European bloc could not take the risk of a network such as Twitter because it is what he called a hub of disinformation supporters. Barraud said on French radio network France Info, warning, disinformation is one of the gravest threats weighing on our democracies. Twitter, if it repeatedly doesn't follow our rules, will be banned from the EU. The EU's Incoming Digital Services Act will go into effect on August the 25th. The EU has warned Elon Musk that Twitter could be subject to sanctions under a future media law after the, quote, worrying suspension of several journalists from the messaging platform. Barrow's threat comes two days after the EU Internal Market Commissioner announced that Elon Musk's Twitter had withdrawn from the bloc's voluntary code to curb disinformation online, which other Silicon Valley companies like Meta, parent of Facebook, and Instagram, Google, and Microsoft have pledged to follow. Musk has time and again claimed his interviews in interviews that now there is less misinformation on Twitter since he bought the site for $44 billion back in October. All sites found in violation of the Digital Services Act face fines up to 6% of the site's annual revenue. Those reports were from Radio Havana, Cuba. Cuba's website is working well at radio8c.cu. 
but there are no podcasts. On shortwave, Cuba may be heard from noon to 1 p.m. at 15140, and from 6 p.m. to midnight at either 606060 or 6165. At their website, you can stream the English version at noon, Monday through Friday, Pacific Daylight Saving Time. If you have questions or comments about the shortwave report or could assist me by supporting this listener-funded program, I may be reached through the website and PayPal or by writing to Dan Roberts at P.O. Box 1162, Willits, California, 95490. Please help me continue producing this weekly show which I freely distribute to radio stations and the internet like listeners in New York City, Cleveland, Ohio, and Bloomington, Indiana did this week. Many, many, many thanks. We will conclude with NHK Japan. France is unhappy with NATO, North Atlantic Treaty Organization's plans to open an office in Tokyo. More information about the recently discovered structural problems with a reactor in Fukushima. Scientists now predict that the Arctic Sea may become ice-free at the end of summer by 2030. NHK Japan France is expressing reluctance about NATO's proposal to open a liaison office in Japan. French diplomatic sources emphasized to NHK on Tuesday that the alliance serves the North Atlantic region, not the Indo-Pacific. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg told CNN last month there are talks underway to open an office in Tokyo. He said the group needs to step up its relationship with its Indo-Pacific partners. Britain's Financial Times newspaper reported on Monday that French President Emmanuel Macron is opposed to the office. French diplomatic sources said if NATO needs to monitor the situation in the Indo-Pacific region, the embassies of its member countries should take on that role. Observers say France may be reluctant because it wants to avoid irritating Beijing. Macron visited China in April, seeking to increase economic ties between the two countries. Tokyo Electric Power Company plans to take more safety measures for the number one reactor at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant. Extensive damage was found in one of the reactor's support structures. The reactor is one of three at the plant that melted down following the 2011 earthquake and tsunami. A survey in March found that a concrete cylindrical pedestal supporting the reactor is seriously damaged, leaving its steel reinforcing rods exposed. TEPCO officials on Monday reported to Japan's nuclear regulator potential risks and preventive measures regarding the pedestal. The officials said there is little likelihood of major damage even if the pedestal fails because other structures will still support the reactor. They added that even if a hole larger than 10 centimeters in diameter develops in the reactor's containment vessel and powdered nuclear fuel debris is released into the environment, the impact will be limited. The officials said they'll install more water pipes to cool the debris in case existing ones become unusable. They added that they plan to install mobile ventilation filters to remove radioactive substances from gases released from the vessel. TEPCO says it plans to finish implementing the additional measures this year.
Scientists are warning the Arctic may become ice-free during the summer as early as the 2030s. Their research underscores the impact that greenhouse gas emissions are having on the Arctic. A team of South Korean and other researchers published their findings on Tuesday in the science journal Nature Communications. Their prediction is based on simulations that utilize data from 1979 to 2019. Arctic sea ice typically shrinks during the summer and fall. The results of the simulations indicate the ice may completely melt as early as the month of September by the 2030s. The researchers say if the Arctic becomes ice-free, warming there could accelerate. They also warn that would affect human society and the ecosystem. Those reports are from NHK World Radio Japan, heard from 9.30 to 10 p.m. at 9.865, or on the web at www.3.nhk.or.jp. They also podcast at most sites. One of my goals in producing this show is to encourage people to listen to international broadcasts, get a global perspective. You have to look harder these days because of U.S. and EU prohibitions on media. Every Thursday evening, I post a new shortwave report at the website for this show. That's outfarpress.com. On my website, you can also listen to past shows. Please consider making a safe donation online through PayPal. There's a link at my website along with the podcast link and get advice for listening at home. The shortwave report, which is now in its 27th year of production, remains free to rebroadcast upon notification. For 27 years, the shortwave report has been produced and distributed off the electrical grid in Northern California using solar panels. While I'm recuperating from spinal surgery, I'm staying in a house that is connected to the grid. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. Thanks for listening.